the Ortho PAC, hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC, where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. On the next several podcasts, we have Dr. Rawad Hamsey. Dr. Hamsey is an assistant professor of the Department of Anesthesiology at Atrium Health Wake Forest Baptist Hospital and specializes in regional anesthesia and acute pain management. Good afternoon, Dr. Hamsey. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks uh, for having me. Appreciate it. On today's podcast, I'd like to review a presentation you gave for our PAOS extremities in the Carolinas recently. Sure. Multimodal analgesia for the orthopedic patient. At the beginning of the talk, you said no financial disclosures. You wish you did have some. I agree. Um, <laughs> is that still the true, true statement? Yes, absolutely. Still, unfortunately, no uh, financial disclosures. So at the beginning of the presentation, you gave an overview of the pathways or perceptions of pain. You talked about ascending and descending nerve pathways. I was hoping you might give our listeners just an overview of that because you, you kind of need to keep that in mind when you're talking about some of these treatments. Sure. Yes. As you, as you alluded to, a lot of the multimodal management of pain centers around different points in this pathway. So it's important to, to get a summary of that pathway as a refresher. Uh, it all starts with the sensation of pain at the nociceptor, which, for example, in the knee or in the hip, starts as a first-order neuron. So that the mechanical or pressure or chemical sensation is sensed as pain in that neuron, and it travels up to the spinal cord where it uh, synapses in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord with a second-order neuron. And then from there, that goes up to the thalamus and onto the cerebral cortex, where it's sensed and, and localized by the body, by the brain, for interpretation as pain. And then that's the main summary of the ascending pathway. You also have the descending pathway from the brain on down. And that is basically a modulatory pathway. Uh, it starts in the periaqueductal gray matter and then goes down to synapse within the spinal cord at multiple different levels to influence and, and often reduce the amount of pain that's sensed by releasing, believe it or not, endogenous opioids. So we have a, an endogenous system that regulates pain, and I'm sure you guys have heard of the endorphins and keflins that the body uses, for example, after exercise um, as a natural pain relief mechanism, there's normally a sense of balance in the body where, whereby the pain signals being sensed are then modulated by descending pathways I just mentioned. And a normal person, that results in pain that's, that's physiologic, essentially. It lets you know injury in the body or damage. We'll see later on how this can, can go awry with chronic pain and, of course, with osteoarthritis where you have chronic damage to the joint structures and inflammation. And so that's, that's kind of the basis of our uh, discussion on nerves. Also in this talk, you referenced quite a bit on osteoarthritis and knee joint osteoarthritis. So there's a little bit of a bend toward that, but you also talked about some other scenarios. But if we talk about osteoarthritis, you said this, and I, I didn't, I remember way back in the day that osteoarthritis was not considered inflammatory arthritis, but sure. you said that it's more than wear and tear, and you described some ways why it's inflammatory, and I was hoping you might go over that, and then you also had mentioned correlating imaging and degree of pain symptoms is not really a good correlation, and I was hoping you might talk about that some as well. Historically, you're right. It's been, osteoarthritis has been viewed as a wear and tear or a mechanical 
problem due to cartilage loss. And it, it was previously thought based on the loss of cartilage that that was the main factor in both the symptoms and the disease process and the dysfunction in the joint. But over time, over the past few decades, you know, the research has actually shown quite a bit of inflammation in osteoarthritis, just like in inflammatory arthritis, such as rheumatoid and, uh, and others. There is a lot of evidence of inflammation in the joint capsule itself, in the synovium, with um, synovial thickening and synovitis. There's also, under the cartilage, subchondral bone cysts that have been shown to be potent uh, inflammatory areas, and then also bone marrow lesions that also are associated with advanced degrees of arthritis uh, from osteoarthritis. And so over time, it's become clear just from studying the disease joints themselves, but also in the treatment modalities, uh, anti-inflammatories being helpful, corticosteroids we'll address later as well, just calming down a lot of that inflammatory pathway seems to be helpful. And then one final note too, uh, we know in obese patients, there is much higher risk factor for, for osteoarthritis, not just in the weight-bearing joints of the hips and knees, but also in their hands. And those aren't weight-bearing joints. And so one of the support for, these, for this theory that osteoarthritis is also an inflammatory condition is the adipokines, which are cytokines that mediate inflammation that are released by the fat cells in the body are also involved in the degree of inflammation and, and indeed the extent of osteoarthritis, even in joints like the hand. So that's overall been the, the recent shift in viewing osteoarthritis as more of an inflammatory process, but there's also obviously mechanical factors involved as well. And it's an overall dysfunction of the joint unit. Now onto your second question about imaging and symptomatology. Other recent studies have also shown that the, the degree of arthritis, uh, whether that's by Kellgren-Lawrence grade or just global view on x-ray, plain films of the joints, narrowing of the joint capsule, other associated findings such as osteophytes, that doesn't always correlate with the degree of pain. It also doesn't always correlate with the dysfunction, range of motion. And, and so something that we've pushed towards is also just correlating the findings on imaging with what the patient reports. Um, you'll find some patients don't actually have that much symptomatology from even advanced arthritis on, on plain films. And unfortunately, sometimes their plain films look rather benign or Kellgren one or two, and they'll have symptoms that are out of proportion. Some of that is because of how the brain processes the pain signals and, and how that can go awry, which we'll talk about later too. Okay, great information. And we had talked about, or you had talked about, I'm sorry, coexisting factors that influence patients with osteoarthritis, you know, not just the pain. And I have several of these folks that come in every three months on the dot to get an injection because they're afraid of getting a, sure. a you know, a surgery or they have, you know, whatever cardiac history. And another thing like functional limitations, you know, your inability to even do your ADLs. And you had a list of these. But I just wanted to touch on that because I think it's important to think about these things when we're discussing our desired outcomes of the treatment. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Sure. So one thing I always aim to, to drive home, being a perioperative surgical home anesthesiologist, I take care of patients around the time of surgery. I see them you know, on, on day of surgery. I see them in pre-op clinic. I see them after the surgery. I, I try to emphasize to everyone involved that we do have to consider the patient as a whole and their arthritis in the context of their, their whole life. 
we're treating a problem that they have, but sometimes their goals are different than, than another patient's goal. Sometimes we have variability in what they hope to be able to accomplish, whether that's range of motion or activity, even to the point where it may guide towards, as you said, a non-operative management of their arthritis, or at some point in their disease course, it may change their, their outlook and, and encourage them to actually seek out surgery as the, the treatment. One of the problems that we still see, though, is up to 10% of hip replacement patients and up to 20% of knee replacement patients are still, after the surgery, after recovery, still unsatisfied with their outcome, whether that's from continued pain, whether that's from pain that never left from the surgery or from the arthritis, or whether that's due to functional limitations and range of motion, et cetera. We do know that the brain over time adapts to how it interprets these pain signals from arthritis and from injury. And due to plasticity in the neurons in the brain, the brain adapts to become more sensitive to these symptoms. And so sometimes when you correct the arthritis, the underlying problem, the plasticity does not change. And so we do see a a significant proportion of patients, for example, in the chronic pain clinic after their joint replacements. For that reason, I I think it's important to consider what does the arthritis mean to the patient? What limitations mean to the patient and what they hope to actually change? Because yes, uh, at the end of the day, arthroplasty is the treatment, is the, the gold standard for management of that arthritis. And I just always strive to, to understand what it is the patient hopes to achieve and make sure that their expectations are realistic, but also that we're treating them in an appropriate way. You had mentioned there opiate therapy. If we talk about opioid therapy for patients kind of perioperatively, or even in those that decided not to do surgery, or like you said, 15% of people that have a total knee still hurt, in managing pain, how do you use opiates if you have failed multimodal analgesia? And I know we haven't talked a lot of uh, detail on that. We're getting to that. But can you talk a little bit about how you would prescribe opiates? And then you also discussed how they work short and long term, and you had a nice graph that showed, you know, peaks and valleys and how tolerance happens. If you just talk a little bit about your opioid therapy, how you would prescribe it. Sure. So this is actually a good segue before touching on multimodals, because the whole goal is to reduce the amount of opioids patients need to be satisfied with their pain management. So in general, a lot of perioperative and and just holistic medical treatment has centered on how we can avoid opioids and the problems, as you mentioned, one of the big ones is tolerance. So in general, I still advocate for trying to make the opioid not a last ditch treatment, but a a treatment that is not first or second line, something that we advance to after maximizing the less harmful, less risky treatment options. I do try to emphasize a multimodal regimen, which obviously we'll discuss. And you know, in the perioperative realm, we actually schedule the multimodals and then make the opioids as needed. And and we do tend to see reduced uh, opioid needs with those medications that they get scheduled. They don't have to ask for them. When you send these patients home, for example, you just instruct them to continue on the Tylenol, continue on the, the Celebrex or what have you. So touching on the other question that you had about tolerance, basically defined as decreased efficacy, decreased ef- uh, effective result of opioid medications, and it can happen surprisingly quickly, uh, as little as one week of regular opioid doses throughout the day. And so what's ha- what happens is the receptors, the mu opioid receptors uh, in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord and elsewhere actually get downregulated. They get removed from the surface of the cells, and they also themselves become less sensitive to the opioid agonists. 
they become less responsive to the medications we're giving them. And it happens, as I mentioned, as little as one week, this can happen. So as little as a, a week of tramadol before surgery, just to get the patient through. Obviously, it's more prone to happen over longer periods of time. It's more severe with ongoing issues. For example, in the case of hyperalgesia, which is just an increased sensitivity to pain uh, or painful stimuli that occurs over time, whether that's from chronic pain, which we know can make the pain pathways more sensitive to the same type of stimuli, but with increasing pain, or whether that's from taking opioids over time. As I mentioned, the fewer opioid receptors you have available in the spinal cord, the more you're going to hurt and the less those pain meds are going to work. So there's a concept of hyperalgesia, both from chronic pain and also from chronic opioid therapies. I do want to make a, a big point to differentiate opioid-induced hyperalgesia, though, OIH. Uh, opioid-induced hyperalgesia is actually a paradoxical worsening of the pain when opioids are administered. And so Whereas regular hyperalgesia, you would normally treat with higher doses of opioids, escalating the doses. Opioid-induced hyperalgesia is, is actually a complete dysfunction where opioid medication escalation actually increases their pain. And it's thought that the NMDA receptors in the spinal cord are responsible in part for this reaction, but also the reduced density of the opioid receptors in the spinal cord. And then lastly, you know, a severe form of hyperalgesia or, or maybe an extension of it, allodynia which is where normal sensations such as light touch or pressure become painful that would not normally be painful in other settings. This can either accompany hyperalgesia. It, it typically is in the setting of chronic pain and can be worsened by chronic opioids. So for all these reasons, I do try to make opioids more of a lower down on the algorithm. Obviously, they're, they're still used quite frequently in medicine and surgery and especially painful surgeries like total joint arthroplasty. But that's, that's more or less how I think about them, just in light of their risks. Sounds more like an adjunct than the go-to, which uh, sure. completely makes sense. So before we get to the multimodal analgesia, I just want to hit on one more thing, the <laughs> buprenorphine. And for those that aren't aware of it, I, I was hoping you might just touch on that and why it would be an issue if somebody's taking that if you try to manage pain with opiates. Sure. So buprenorphine, the generic name, you may see it as Suboxone or Subutex or Butrans or other formulations of it. It's basically, it's all buprenorphine products and it's essentially, it's a mixed agonist antagonist opioid. So it is an opioid medication itself. The agonist activity, so there's subtypes of the opioid receptors. The most commonly known one is the mu opioid receptor, which is what we're typically talking about in terms of analgesia. And so it's a partial agonist at the mu opioid receptor. It's so-called a partial agonist. It doesn't stimulate the receptor as much as other traditional opioids like fentanyl or oxycodone or hydrocodone, for example, but it binds it very tightly. It's, it's extremely high affinity for the mu opioid receptor. We'll touch on that in a second. Um, it also has antagonist properties at the kappa opioid receptor, which is why it's used a lot in addiction medicine, and then an antagonist at delta. So we, we sometimes just call it a partial agonist because that's describing what it does at the mu opioid receptor. Now, I said uh, a minute ago that there's very high affinity for the mu opioid receptor with buprenorphine, and it binds extremely tightly. Because of its partial agonism, it can and does cause analgesia. So when you give a patient with pain buprenorphine, they should improve. Their pain should get better. 
It's a partial agonist though. So there's less of an effect of respiratory depression, which is an important limiting factor. It's how a lot of people overdose on opioids on the streets, for example, and die when they have opioid use disorder, or even at home when they're over-treated or take uh, you know, more than indicated of their opioid medications that are prescribed. You have respiratory depression and in some cases uh, to the point of death, obviously. But with buprenorphine, there's a ceiling effect to the degree of respiratory depression, and they're still not entirely sure why when they've looked at it in studies, but for whatever reason, the, the way buprenorphine interacts with the receptor, it does cause analgesia. In some cases, you know, some studies have shown no ceiling effect to the analgesia, but there is a ceiling effect for the respiratory depression. So it's very hard to overdose and die on buprenorphine, whereas with other opioids, it's, it's unfortunately um, a, a big risk. So we use it a lot in opioid use disorder patients who either are taking fentanyl illicitly or heroin or have misused prescription opioids, but also those with history of substance use disorder. So those who take methamphetamines or cocaine or what have you, because it's a safer opioid, if they have addiction problems at baseline, it is a safer opioid. They're not likely to overdose and die. The therapeutic window is much bigger. It's safer than full agonists because of that partial agonist effect at respiratory depression. Now to the big question, what do we do with patients on buprenorphine? Why is it a problem um, when they come in for surgery? It's not necessarily a problem to give them pure agonists, unless of course they have a history of opioid use disorder, in which case that does really increase their risk of relapse. The problem becomes when, when you give them normal traditional opioids like Percocet, like Dilaudid, it tends to have less of an affinity than the buprenorphine does for the receptors. And so they tend to not really see an effect from that medication until you escalate doses. Depending on their dose of buprenorphine, you may have to escalate to, to quite high doses. Uh, a lot of practitioners are not, not very comfortable with the doses that these patients sometimes require. For that reason, at, at my institution and others, we usually prefer to treat patients on buprenorphine with buprenorphine products for pain. And indeed, it does have analgesia associated with it. A, because most of these, again, most of these patients do have opioid use disorder history, and we don't want to put them at high risk of relapse by exposing them to traditional opioids, but also just because it's going to be more effective at treating their pain than, than full agonists, such as you know oxycodone, which would normally be our go-to. Does that, uh, does that somewhat answer the question? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's perfect. You know, we see patients that are on this. My practice, we actually have someone who uses this routinely mm -hmm. uh, that did some addiction medicine. So, you know, we'll see that, you know, somebody comes in with a wrist fracture that's on buprenorphine. What do you do? Um, mm -hmm. Well, first, I think call someone that knows more about it than I do uh, <laughs> and work on their wrist. But sure. that's perfect. Uh, thank you so much for that. Dr. Hamzy, thank you for being on today. This is great oh. information. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Sam. Thanks for having me. Please tune in next week for more on multimodal analgesia in the orthopedic patient. Please follow the Physician Assistance in Orthopedic Surgery on social media. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Please subscribe to our podcast. If this has been helpful, please take a moment to leave a review. I'm excited to tell our audience that Denver registration is now open for our 22nd annual meeting. This is our annual fall meeting and will be August 22nd through the 26th at the Sheridan Denver Downtown Hotel. Come and join us for some CME and get away for a little while in the Mile High City. Stop by the desk and say hello. I look forward to seeing you there.